Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation with my friend, Raul Paul. He's the visionary. He's the fearless leader of Real Vision. Uh, it's probably the best guy, or at least one of them, Raul. Uh, certainly the guy with the best view where he's sitting today uh, that can think clearly about what is happening in the market today. I think a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people that follow both of us, but a lot of people elsewhere have been surprised by the move in bond yields in particular and the abrupt move. Uh, across asset classes. So uh, we tried to time it this way, did we not, Raul? We tried to time exactly. it. Exactly. We knew the markets were going to set up like this perfectly for our conversation. <laughs> Timely topical content is what we're, uh, we're, we're and it truly is what we're after, and we're trying to get people uh, readily aware of the risks. So I want to start with that. I know uh, you haven't been shy about it, and, and thankfully uh, you've absolutely nailed a massive call, whether it's in euro dollars or some of the things that I just mentioned. Uh, but you've not been shy in talking about recessionary risks, and, and I just want to you know, lay that out there first and, and just give you the opening volley. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, like you, is I don't deal in certainties, I deal in probabilities, but I use a business cycle framework as my format for analysis and understanding where we are in the world. And if I look at the business cycle and I can use, let's say, ISM as an easy way of looking at it, and I look at a bunch of forward-looking indicators, now that could be stuff like um, semiconductor sales, or it may be global trade, or it may be exports, or maybe there's a number of things that are part of that business cycle. And many of those are starting to flash signals to say, if we continue in this trend, then we're going into recession, and we could be there maybe end of this year, maybe beginning of next year. So I'm starting to really focus on this whole process. And obviously, the bond market's telling us something very similar as well. So I, I always pay attention to the bond market. So that's kind of my thesis is in that. It's in the data in my particular analysis framework. Mm-hmm. Well, that I mean, that analysis you know, lends itself to, to what's readily available for anybody to look at, which is a recession that's already here. I mean, we have a recession in, in corporate profits. Depending on what sector, it's getting pretty nasty pretty quickly. We have actually a recession in tech. I mean, uh, the guys can throw up, uh, and, and, and pardon the pun, but th- throwing up is kind of how the way, you know, these people have been trying to throw up these numbers and guidance that people don't believe, and then they're going up on bad news, but then they're not. I mean, tech earnings are actually negative year over year for the second quarter in a row within the S&P 500 as of this morning. Um, so that you know doesn't look as bad as energy and materials yet, but those are... Those are recessionary numbers. I mean, how, 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 how often do you get um, pinged on, is that all priced in though, Raul? Uh, I mean, I think I go meeting to meeting and that's gotta be one of the top questions I get. Um, I don't because most of what I've been talking about is more forward looking, but you know, I do look at corporate profits and year on year rate of change of corporate profits is but roughly the same as the ISM. They kind of right. look the same. So this is a function of the business cycle. It's getting weaker. But what gets interesting to me is once these corporate profits start falling and corporate cash flows start falling, then the probabilities of buybacks start falling as well. So the markets themselves become more volatile. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole bunch of things that I look at. Um, people are, in, in interest rate world, yes, people keep saying, well, isn't it all priced in? Of which my answer is no, rates are going to zero and lower. But <laughs> in, in equity markets, you know, I've been less involved in equity markets because I think the higher 
quality trade that you and I talked about last time we got together was that kind of front end of the curve market and that, you know, that euro dollars in two years, because that was just such a layup. It's less volatility involved and, you know, high returns. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's precisely the point. And I think a lot of people that, wa that are watching this now are starting to understand how to do macro the way that you and I do it in rate of change terms is, is quite that point, which is you don't actually have to take on the volatility of chasing the chart in semiconductors or the NASDAQ for that matter, when you could have just made money all along. You know, we call it full cycle investing. I think I might actually write a book on that uh, because I just don't think that enough people uh, think about the full cycle invest, uh, of investing uh, across the profit cycle uh, and, and across the, 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 entire, the entirety of the yeah, sign, sign curve. I think people struggle with also multi-asset stuff. So people have been so focused on equities in the last, you know, eight years or so that they don't realize people kind of think of bonds as a safe haven. Well, bonds with a bit of leverage like bond futures are incredible source of profit. Something yeah. like Stan Druckenmiller, when he came on Real Vision, he said, look, the dirty truth is he makes all of his money in the 18 months going into recession and he makes it all out of Eurodollar futures yeah. because you know, that's where the massive leverage, but with low volatility comes from. Yeah, and some people, I've had a lot of feedback on that comment when you first made it because, of course, that was that was your call. That was not, that definitely uh, wasn't the focus of my call. I mean, I was long the short end of the curve, long the curve, the entirety of the curve. Um, but yeah. but that point, like some, some call them, and, and we have them as, as individual subscribers, both you and I, they don't know how to implement that trade, Raul. And I don't want to make this, I don't want to make, spend too much time on that. But how, like, how would you actually tell your, your I'm not talking average guy in the street or talk down to people, but somebody that's made a lot of money, uh, but maybe not Goldman's top prime brokerage um, yeah, client, so like how do they do that? Yeah, and that question comes up. That's the biggest question I get all day is, okay, do? how do I do this trade? Because people aren't familiar with it. Yep. So the simple thing is a euro dollar futures contract is priced at, let's say, 98.50 right now for the December 2020 euro dollar future. So what does that mean? Well, basically, 100 minus that number gives you the interest rates that it's pricing in, which is telling you 1.5%. Okay, now I think rates are going to zero, so I've got 1.5% um, to be made from that. So that doesn't look like a lot. But the fact is, is that in the futures in these, you only put down relatively little margin. So you can actually make, you know, 10x your money in a trade like that. But to make it even easier for somebody who's not sure about that leverage, not sure how to think about it, is it's one of the most liquid markets on earth, if not the most liquid futures market on earth. And they have an incredibly liquid options market. So here's a nice easy way of playing it is if you think that interest rates are going to zero like me and you think that's going to happen in the next uh, 18 months, then you can buy the December 99 strike calls on euro dollars for 2020. And they cost about, I think the last time I checked, about 16 ticks and you can make back 100. Mm -hmm. So there's a nice kind of five for one risk reward in that. So that's a very simple way. You're not running excess risks, but you've got huge returns if you believe as um, in my kind of thesis that rates are going to zero yeah you massive returns this week and in, in one day you massive returns no wonder why you get such a nice smile on your face this week <laughs> because, yeah. because, and, I mean, that, and that's really the you know when you move the move and a lot of people uh, have had questions about that moving the treasury bond um, treasury bond volatility index you know people thought that that was going to happen when interest rates were going up oh my god this is the risk when in reality it's actually blowing a hole through the bottom end of the what we call the risk range in both the the tenure, the two-year, et cetera. What is it about that that people don't quite get in the moment when you're at this stage of the cycle? I think because structurally, it's a big shift to go from people 
getting their head around interest rates are not rising because the world sets itself up for this. Mortgages, everyone starts having fixed rate mortgages. Everything starts setting up that's embedded within the derivative markets of this. So what you set up is negative gamma, which is things move faster to the downside than to the upside yep. in, in terms of yield because of this structural setup. So that's why when everybody was betting on the rates are going to 4%, 5%, 6%, all that nonsense that went on, I kind of knew and you knew as well is that the actual fast rate of change was when that view was wrong because the market was entirely set up for it. So even when we look at positioning in bond markets right now, they still haven't priced that in. So I think that all of that negative gamma is in yields falling or the TLT rising. Yeah, that's I mean, that, that's a super important point, as many of the points that you, you make are, uh, because you're looking at within the lens of not just stocks. I mean, I hate that, 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 that increasingly hate that that term, but it is, it is at least moderately funny. Uh, guys, if you show CFTC futures and options positioning, the you know, non-commercial RAL is what I'm going to show here. Uh, you can't see it, but you obviously look at this. Uh, and look no, at it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and look, it's you can see it. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so so still today, you know, in October, that was the max net long or max net short position. Twos, fives, tens. Pick your pick your vintage. It's and people say, well, that's come in. Well, no. I mean, it, it, that that if it was a consensus, would be a net long position. Never. I mean, it's still a massive net short position uh, on a nominal basis. And for whatever reason, that just has not gone away. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't understand why it's not gone away. Um, we've noticed that in a few markets recently, but in the euro dollar markets, the one that I've been looking at the most, I mean, it was it was a negative. I mean, people were short four million contracts. It was the largest position in the history of euro dollars when I started going the other way. Yep. And now they've just gone positive and people are saying, oh my God, they're overbought. I'm like, well, if they went negative four million, they're gonna go positive <laughs> four million too. So I just think we've got a huge move still to come. And I understand that the pension system is still dramatically underweight fixed income and as are almost all portfolios. So. I think there's a long, long, long way before we get there. Yeah, that's precisely the point that we just made. And it's, a, it's again, uh, I don't want to sound Trumpian with the super duper awesomely important point, but the point actually is the point. When you look at the hedge fund community and non-commercial positioning across macro, you know, there is a there is a mean reverting nature to consensus. So the consensus of minus three to four million euro dollar contracts, which people can see again, show that data, guys, uh, that was within, you know, on a one-year look back, the low. Now we're not even at a million net long. So um, we'd like to talk about the standard deviation of risk or the Z-score of the positioning relative to itself, because that really is a way to look at as opposed to feeling, and I'm sure you get this a lot, Raul. I mean, people tell me how they feel about the market. I mean, come enough about your feelings. How you? F it, it, this isn't about feel. This is what the positioning is, and that's um, yeah. I think a real important thing that I've had to learn over the course of certainly the last five to ten years, never mind the last twenty. Yeah, and it's learning to interpret that data properly without putting your structural biases into it. You know, so people really struggle with that, um, and I, you know, I think it it does take time to learn. And it does take time to really not listen to your inner voice and actually just look at the data properly yep. and understand what it's saying. Yeah, you can take the, and again, just, just like you said, ISMs, PMIs, the rate of change data in the business cycle, you could take the rate of change in positioning, whether you're looking at options, premiums, or discounts, you can look at, uh, as we just outlined, the net okay. positioning that's, of the market. I mean, that's key, I think, Keith, is the rate of change is everything in macro. It, everything happens at the margin. 
So it's that we're always looking for and understanding those shifts of the rate of change. Because once it actually shows up in price, it's too late. Yeah, that, um, exactly. Um, now, uh, one thing that uh, obviously annoys me because I don't start with valuation is now we have a bunch of people that are playing catch up to this view that growth is slowing. And they have these magical um, optimal PE models that tell you that what the certain PE will be of the S&P at certain levels of the ISM. I mean, I couldn't make that up if I tried. Um, so I'll let them keep making that up. But uh, even if people want to still do macro that way, if they still want to live in their linear P boxes and valuation uh, frameworks, you know, what is it about ISMs that, that doesn't stop them from going down? Because a lot of people now would just say, hey, Rolf, good, great call, uh, but ISMs can't go any lower. Like, why, can't, why, why do you think that that can, um, that can continue? The reason being is we're now in the longest cycle in all recorded US history. So it's already very long in the tooth. The structure of the cycle looks negative. Now, people say, yeah, but so did it in 2015 and so did it in 2013, so let's, uh, 12. So let's deal with those two examples. 2012, when US GDP growth hit zero, was Europe almost fell apart. So we came to an extraordinary stress situation. We had a bear market around the world and we thought the entire European banking system and in fact the euro itself was going to go. Okay, so that's a pretty valid reason. The US, <laughs> went, you know, there was a massive QE, everybody was stimulating, everybody was trying to avoid the bankruptcy of the entire world's financial system. Okay, they saved it, great. The next one was 2015 when the dollar exploded higher and the whole world went into slowdown as oil prices collapsed, commodity prices collapsed, and global dollar flows shrunk. So that was a situation that was a global issue. It spread to the US manufacturing, and it didn't quite make it through. The Chinese ended up stimulating just in time to save the day. Now, the Fed weren't cutting rates then, as weren't hiking rates then. The rate hike cycle hadn't started. So normally, um, the probability is if the Fed have been hiking rates for a while, you tend to end the business cycle then, mm -hmm. and only then. So cut to 2018, China had started slowing and the Fed were hiking rates. It was that dichotomy that made me realize something was potentially going wrong here, that the globe was slowing. So China, Asia, Europe were all starting to slow. And meanwhile, the Fed were hiking. And I thought the, the Fed are going to lag this cycle and they're going to get themselves into trouble. And then I started to see the economic data, the rate of change of that economic data start falling. So I think now we've had a situation where rates are tight. They've moved 25 basis points. We have a situation where tariffs are imposing a slowdown in global trade. All of the global trade supply linkages are breaking and corporations are paralyzed in what they can do in terms of rebuilding trade linkages. It's difficult to know. You know, you start thinking, I'm going to move to Vietnam next minute. Trump stops Vietnam as your avenue. Mm -hmm. Mexico is like on, off, on, off. So do I want to manufacture in Mexico? I don't because I don't know what the outcomes are going to be. So if you've got an unknown policy, you have a tendency to just say, right, I'm going to go and analyze my trade linkages, employ McKinsey and KPMG and figure this out over the next three years, but I'm not spending money. So corporate expenditure collapses in that environment. So I think there is a probability to that too. 
we're seeing global trade falling and then we've got the dollar which is you can't keep it down and if that goes higher so we're starting to shift all the balance of probabilities in for a lower ism um and then the final um part of this equation or not the final part we've obviously got china slowing down europe slowing down there's no monetary policy left in any of these countries so that makes it difficult to stop nobody's going to stimulate yet so and then on top of that we've got the treasury uh, running um increasing its general um its treasury general account um as the debt ceiling raises and that in itself is causing another dollar shortage and a tightening of money market conditions just when they don't want conditions to tighten. Mm -hmm. That's um so so to put all that and wrap it with a bow in my vernacular uh in rate of change space you don't think that even though th that we've seen weakening since Q1 of 18 in China, EM, Europe, etc. that they can comp easier comps just cuz they're a little bit easier. They're not absolutely recessionary easy comps. They're just easier than where they came from which is from the Correct. peak of the we're, cycle. We just we just marginal recessions everywhere you know yep. in, in all of those regions right so we're not we haven't had the flush mm -hmm. and the flush is always you need to get worried once everything goes to a correlation of one and you know you know the stocks stocks all start selling off globally bond markets scream higher all of those kind of things when they all happen together for an extended period of time and gdp growth around the world you start seeing that the negative ones negative twos after that you start paying attention for the rate of growth and i start going down to 3 month on 3 month rate of change just to make sure i don't yep. miss that turning point and get carried out but we are, we haven't got there yet so we've just had we had a little bit of a pause over a couple of the summer months but the forward-looking data looks terrible still. So it looks to me like we're about to break lower um, in all of these kind of all of the, the the data. And I think you know, let's wait and see how your nowcast does. But it'd be very interesting to see whether that starts coming drifting lower as well. Well, you know, the the way that the model works, and and we walk through it, is that easy comps beget a higher probability or a rising probability that the former slowdown in this case starts to slow a at a lesser rate, and then b you get an acceleration. Uh, we've seen neither. Uh, in fact, we've seen against easier comps, uh, you take any Asian export data, they are some of the worst numbers, Raul. I've been writing these numbers down. I also write them down. We obviously pop them in the predictive tracking algos, but I write them down. I've never written down negative 38% year-over-year Japanese machine tool orders. I mean, uh, these, are, these are like the worst numbers I've ever seen. And, um, and, and now they're starting to find their way into like the main line of consumption. Uh, France consumer spending went negative uh, 0.6 year over year this week. German consumption or uh, retail sales negative. So you have the exporting uh, consumers in Europe are probably getting a little alarmed by the export data by which they own the businesses and they're spending less money too. So I, I, I can't find a I can't find a green shoot. I just can't. There's zero. No, and I. <laughs> I took off a whole bunch of trades in June, fearing some sort of bounce as some stability. And I've been waiting for some improvement in the data. The best we got was a bit of sideways. Yeah. And I cannot find a green shoot. And I sat down to write Global Macro Investor, which is my kind of big uh, research product that I've been writing for the last 15 years. I sat down and wrote that last weekend. 
and I didn't know what I was going to write. I thought it, I may continue with the kind of, I'm not really sure, I didn't have clarity. And I sat down and did all of my analysis, looked at all of my data, looked at all of my charts, and I'm like, holy shit, this is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> it really is holy shit. I mean, I think you said uh, the other day, what did you say about the shit um, the other day on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a shit ton going on right yeah, now. Yeah, there is. And I think that, like, because so, I mean, a lot of what we've just talked about has to do with that global cyclical slowdown and so many macro tourists think it has to do with the, 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 the tariffs and the trade speak but it really is comping the most epic stimulus in the history of China that's why you were slowing to begin with and then moreover like which I think is the m most um, complacent point is that people don't understand to your point how intensely positive the rate of change was in the US at the very end of it which was at this time last year. We have a slide on that to just to show you in context, uh, slide 66, which is the consecutiveness of the momentum of growth. Nine quarters in a row. Never happened in the history of the USA. Um, that eight should be a nine. And, and at the end of the day, like people are asking you about 2016. I mean, 2016 was, was the beginning of that. I mean, that, you know, the back end, the acceleration coming out of the Chinese stimulus uh, it wasn't you know, Trump's uh, big brain in the election. It was easy comparisons. And now we have these, what I would just call, uncomparable comps in the place that the most amount of people are the most complacent, which is basically U.S. equities. Yeah, that's right. And you know, really interesting, on Real Vision, I had a two weeks of programming where I put in my hypothesis that I think we're going into recession. And I tested against everybody I knew. It was, I tried to get you, but you were away. We, <laughs> we, got, a whole, we got everybody... Um, that I really respected to talk about it. And fascinating, because we dug into various sectors and different regions to get different perspectives. I mean, things I didn't know about, what's happening, for example, to the Japanese regional banks and how they're imploding because of negative rates and, and what's happening to, obviously, the European banks and how they're struggling with negative rates and a whole bunch of things out there. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, uh, we even talked to people who are shipping metals around the world to find out what's going on with those markets. And I could not find a green shoot from anybody in anything. And the rate of change for everybody looks like it's getting worse. And perversely, if you do get a green shoot, now that we have, um, I, I have no idea what Powell was, was doing, calling it a mid cycle adjustment, um, you know, lo and behold, you get a reasonably uh, good or a late cycle good, which always happens in employment report today. And the market's like, oh, my God, any good data point, never mind a great one or a green shoot would be bad for the market. So you're, that's a Wally world for people. You know, they just yeah. they don't know what to do with that. Yeah, clearly, the equity market today, I mean, this is a multi-standard deviation move after 48 hours of multi-standard deviation moves. And that, those kind of pulverizing moves tell you that your average long short or long only portfolio manager was improperly positioned for this and now really doesn't have a catalyst. There's no Fed cut uh, for at least another month and there's definitely no solution to the trade war. So what do they do with that? And look, and also you and I know is Fed cuts are usually terrible because they're going on when the economy is weakening. Yes. They're never bullish equities. The first cut often is because everyone gets excited about the first cut. But after a while, you very quickly realize that when the Fed are cutting rates, the stock market is falling yep. and the economy is slowing. You know, and people's mindsets are really screwy about this. I don't really quite understand that. Well, the old wall does a pretty good job saying it's different this time. I mean, that's what their research departments have said. Hey, as long as you don't have a recession, it's okay, which is just not true. I mean, you don't have to have a recession to lose 30, 40, 50 percent of your money. We didn't have a recession in the U.S. in 2016. The average decline in the Russell 3000 was 38 percent from the 2015 high. Um, but what, what happened yeah. was you had a profit recession in certain parts of the economy.
Yeah, and you know, uh, yeah, what you and I were talking before we came on the show is that the, the tag recession is irrelevant, right? Because we're in the business of trying to make money out of markets, or even if not, help people who run businesses understand the risks or the opportunities within the global economy. It's irrelevant whether it's a recession or not. What we're trying to say is, okay, growth is slowing down here, growth is speeding up here, this is how you can take advantage of it, or this is how you can protect yourself. And the tag of recession is kind of all a bit ludicrous, you know, if I believe we're going into recession or not. Yeah. No, what I believe in is bond yields are going much lower, equities are probably volatile, maybe go lower, but I'm, I have a stronger view on commodities and a stronger view on the dollar. That's my view. It just happens to sound like a recession. So I'll go with that because I think it's probably correct. But yeah. it doesn't really matter. No, but that's really that tagging. People want to label people. They want to simplify it. They don't want to do all the work. I mean, I was in Greenwich yesterday. We had a, a seeing clients of one big insurance company. But then and so they weren't into the, you know, he said, she said of Wall Street. But two hedge funds were all said, oh, you're you're doing a you're doing a thing with that recession guy. So they're calling you the recession guy. And I'm like, Look, this, he's, a, he's, a, he's a business cycle guy. He's a macro guy, but I hear you. Um, it's interesting at this stage that most of the bears have gone away. Uh, that is, a, by the way, I think a compliment to you. Uh, but labeling you is, is, is that's, that, that, that barely grazes across the beginning of the points that we're trying to make, does it not? Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous, right? You know, you and I are indifferent to where we are. You know, I come at I come at my analysis in a different way than you because I look at the cycle and I project the cycle forwards. You're using it from your data set that you use. But the point being is, is some markets we're looking, you know, we're looking at the optimum, the you know, a more optimistic opportunity. I'm not seeing it right now around the world, but I'm indifferent to where it goes. Yes, look, I'm a macro guy. I came from a hedge fund. I know that you make all the money in a bear market. I get that. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it makes me um, overwhelmingly bearish in everything I look at. Just it's irrelevant to me. <laughs> what we're here to do is make money. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you couldn't find somebody who's more bullish uh, on treasuries or, or sovereign bonds, for that matter, than, than yeah, that's than, right. Than you or I. What's wrong with being um, bullish on bonds, right? I, I mean, I have struggled, uh, and, and some people struggle with me because I struggle with it by just calling out guys like Gunlack on this point. I mean, we're talking some. Uh, I would say, at least if, I, if my name was the Bond King, I, I think I'd be relatively disappointed in my performance in saying that. You know, 10 months ago that the, the bond yields could only go up and then the whole way down, he actually at one point tweeted, those who are buying treasuries here, I think around like maybe even two and a quarter, 250 on the 10 year, would feel quote unquote remorse. And then he just went away on it. I'm wondering like, where is everyone on this? Why have every, I mean, I, I would say that he's a pretty big player in the market, would you not? And, and, and that that's a pretty big, pretty big offsides if that is. I think there's something bigger than that is nobody cares about bonds. Everyone's been brainwashed. Brainwashed okay. that it's equity or nothing. Yeah, that's why right? there's only and one bond the king left. Yeah, and the, <laughs> the fact is, as, as you know, is you can make a lot of money in bonds. Yeah. And everyone's so brainwashed by equities, and so they, they ignore that Gunlap made such a bad call because there's no vigilantes over people like him anymore. Because it's yeah. all equity, guys. And he's been Surely. he's been fantastic over the course of his career. It doesn't mean that you know people can you know start to lose money. That's happened, by the way, to every major money manager across history that gets too big. Um, so anyway, I digress. Uh, back on the dollar, and then I want to hit on some of your other ideas that have been not yeah. only differentiated, but I think need to get um, dug into a little deeper here. Dollars. Um, 
Dollar from here, I mean, first of all, quad four, as you know, we call it, is bullish for the dollar. It's the only quadrant, economic quadrant, where the dollar back tests as having its highest, a positive expected value, never mind a high and rising one. Um, so we're in that. Uh, when the dollar is going up and treasury yields are going down, you're quintessentially the market, global macro market, not you know, semiconductor chart monkey market, um, is saying, uh, look, we're in quad four. Um, how, how hard would it be? You know, people today are saying, well, Trump's going to turn around and do something like a la Baker 1980s to the dollar because Powell can't get it done. And I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting, like most, most things you might want to read on Zero Hedge. But um, that would that, that, uh, be hard to do against what the euro is doing and, the, and everything else, you know, the, uh, the British pound in particular. Look, firstly, if you're imposing trade tariffs, you're lowering global trade. That's happening. So that automatically means there are less U.S. dollars in the global system. Yep. If there are less global, if there's less dollars, and the world is short, according to the BIS, 13 trillion U.S. dollars. That's foreigners <laughs> have foreign dollar-denominated debts. Then you've got a problem. So how do the Fed, with their crappy two percent interest rate ability, change that equation? They simply cannot. So nothing in the interest rate horizon is going to change that. Okay, so then we talk about intervention. That's the new flavor of the month. Everyone's like, oh, the, the Fed are going to intervene. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Problem is, is Japan and Europe are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're wanting their currencies to depreciate. It's one of the reasons I'm bullish on gold, and one of the reasons I'm bullish on Bitcoin, actually. But anyway, the situation is it's virtually impossible for the US to run its uh, policies, its foreign policy, and have a weak dollar. So it's going to have to figure out some answer here. But it's not going to be this. Um, so I think that it is becoming it's going to become a much bigger problem than anybody even perceives because the two things are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's anything they can do about it unless they completely back away from their foreign policy, which they can't do because that's what they're going to use to run the election on. It's, it's um, a frightening uh, uh, path that they might have to go down. Now, somebody might say, okay, uh, election coming up, that actually is the point that you'd have to just get outright structurally aggressive against the dollar, cut 50 basis points at a time, three times for starters, and then go to MMT. Uh, I, th- I think well, MMT is a credible threat for the world's reserve currency if it's used and abused to that degree. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. So firstly, I think, why would the... F- why would Trump want a weaker dollar going into the election? The reason you want a strong dollar is because you tell any American your dollar's strong, it sounds like it sounds good, right? You're doing the right thing. <laughs> like the stock market's going up. The other thing is that it it offsets any increase in cost due to tariffs. So that's what it's doing. So the, the consumer doesn't feel it as much. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's a real issue with a strong dollar going into the election. And he can say, look what these other countries countries are doing to us and it just plays into that into that election base so um, I, yeah I don't really know from that I just I just see the fact that I can't see how they can stop it MMT well if the Fed are doing MMT what the hell are the Japanese doing they're probably going to debt jubilee what are the Europeans doing right they've all run out so I hosted a, um, a Goldman macro event in London a, a couple of months ago and I invited the ECB because I said I want to get them in a room and say, right, so what are you going to do next time? Because we're about to come into recession. What are you going to do? And they, let, they said, well, you know, we might um, we might cut rates a bit more. I said, what, 20 bips, 50 bips? What are you going to do? 
and they didn't have an answer. That, that answer is Christine Lagarde. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh she yeah. She does. She does restructurings of bankrupt nations. Lovely, lovely, lovely. And I'm sure she's lovely. Um, next idea that you've had: European banks. Let's go, just dig into that, and also, you know, let's just tie it to reality. I mean, and maybe is that the end of uh, the U.S. bank story too? I hear a lot of value guys and gals pitching me bank stocks. They actually all used to pitch European bank stocks. If you remember, that was the best hedge right. line idea back in 2017. They're all cheap relative to U.S. banks. They completely missed the cycle call in Europe and, and interest rates going to all-time lows. I think that was a bit of a problem. But, I mean, from here, because um, they've gone down a lot, which has been a great call for you, for Dalio, for any, any of us who've been bearish on Europe and their banks, uh, why would they go lower from here? Well, I don't know if you can see behind me on my screen is I'm looking at the, the European bank sector. We're on something, I call it the GMI worst chart in the world is on a <laughs> on a 40 year a 35 year trend line which is a kind of a head and shoulders top and we're just about to break so what the hell's going on in european banks well i lived in europe for 10 years living on the mediterranean coast in spain i almost you know i almost saw the banking system close down the ecb forced the spanish banks to take a bailout what actually happens is the european banks never solved their debt problems for starters. Then interest rates went negative and all the bank's margins got crushed. So they've got toxic assets, too much um, too much lending still, too many MPLs that are not disclosed, and they fund in US dollars, half of their funding book. Mm -hmm. There's not enough dollars around. So they have a real problem. So I'm watching the smaller Spanish banks like Banco Sabadell, even the big ones like BBVA, going to, I mean, Savadell, new all-time lows. Bankier, new all-time lows. I mean, this thing is, Savadell's now trading at like 70 cents, oh, euro boy. cents. That's I mean, horrendous. these things are going under, and we know about Deutsche Bank. I've been on and on and on about Deutsche Bank. And then there's SocGen, there's UBS, there's Credit Suisse. The whole lot look like they're going down the toilet. And the worst thing about this is, what is the central bank's response? Cut rates. Mm -hmm. So the buns are going massively negative what does that do that pushes the banks into the death spiral so we've got ourselves in a spiral now where nobody has an outcome that can save the banks huh. because they're now saying the ecb are now saying well maybe they'll do a tiered negative rate system so it doesn't hurt the banks as much problem is the buns which are freely traded are going to go massive negative so then the ecb are going to have to peg, peg the bund market as well it's a mess and i don't think they've got the time to resolve it before, you know, I think Christine Lagarde is going to come into a new job and have to negotiate a massive bailout of the European banking sector. I mean, that that looks, I mean, uh, the, one of the first lessons I was ever taught uh, as a hedge fund analyst, uh, when I was the analyst and the PM was yelling at me was, lower lows are bad. Lower lows are bad. Like, what are you, an idiot, Keith? And I was like, okay, I got it. Lower lows are bad. Higher highs are good. Um, but lower lows, uh, when you pull out a 20-year chart, a 30-year chart, and you're making lower lows on that basis, I mean, Japanese banks, I guess, if you pulled it back the 35-year chart, would probably look quite similar, would they not? Yeah, so I wrote about the Japanese banks. The Japanese banks also are breaking to new all-time lows, all -time particularly lows. the regional bank. Yeah. So, I mean, and nobody's listening, Keith. Yeah, but what, Keith, if, if we went on television in the last recession, say every single major bank in Japan and Europe is going to all-time lows, there'd be chaos. No, now, everyone's like, so what? It's well, cheap. It's a, it's the, what you don't understand, Raul, is that they're incredibly cheap. 
It's the valuation that I have of my book value valuation, my super duper Harvard Business School education tells me I have to buy Bank of America with both hands here because there's no way it can get any cheaper. I mean, so, and we're, and we're going to adopt the same damn uh, monetary policy that they have? I mean, with no yield curve? The amount of people, by the way, now that I'm going to rant a little bit, that told me, hedge fund clients told me, so they were telling me in, in good faith and going to still pay me because I disagreed, uh, was that when the Fed cuts, Keith, the curve's finally going to steepen and it's going to be good for the banks. And what happened? Fed cut rates, the curve gets pancaked. We got inversion again this morning. And people are still long U.S. bank stocks because they're cheap. Also... If rates are going to zero, the curve can steepen, but the banks are going to zero, and that's the case. Yeah. So you have, you know, there is, you know, we've seen this in Europe and Japan. Yes, the curve can never steepen as much as it ever did in the past, obviously, because as rates all come down to zero. But the fact is, is for the banks, that is the worst situation. It's not like you've got tens trading at six percent and twos trading at two percent. <laughs> you know, you've got twos at negative two and tens at. You know, negative 75 basis points. I mean, you know, that's the death of the banking system. Yeah, that's why Deutsche Bank just eliminated all of our competition. That 5% market share for Raul and Keith. And then no more, no more research. Uh, because they can't, they can't pay for it. You can't pay for anything with that level. Uh, that's where the, the level uh, of rates actually does come into play. Um, so I got that. Now, on um, South Korea, that's one. I want to get to the questions. By the way, if you have questions uh, for Raul or I, please pop them in the queue. There's already a ton of them. I'm going to have to sift through them. But um, you... South Korea has become a quite interesting, uh, I think we have a chart, Does, do we have a chart of the Kospi? I mean, if anybody doesn't know where it is, they, they probably haven't been doing macro, but I mean, Dr. Copper, Dr. Kospi, what could possibly go wrong? They're all making new two-year lows uh, in the middle of an alleged trade deal, I might add. Uh, but what is actually, what, what is the broader uh, picture in South Korea right now so to, to, to consider? You, you and I love a canary in the coal mine, right? Something that reflects all of our views perfectly. And Korea is that, because here is a country with virtually no interest rates left, yep. massive debts that got caught up in global trade wars, the global semiconductor wipeout that's going on. They are part of the supply chain with China, so that's a big mess. Then on top of it, the Japanese started a trade war with them. So they're trying to stop doing trade. And South Korea is only an export nation. So it is struggling from every single angle. And then the and then their corporate sector massively funds in US dollars and the dollar goes up. So what you've got is a perfect storm for South Korea. And also China itself, the economy is slow. And there's a risk that the Chinese tanks go into Hong Kong. So just as a regional thing, this is a big concern all round for Korea. Mm -hmm. So Korea, I think, stands a chance to see capital flight. And if I look at the monthly, daily and weekly charts of the currency, it looks like that currency is moving. If we look at any of the economic data, the rate of change of all of it is falling. It's in free fall right now. As you know, as you said, stuff like exports, we don't see numbers like this often. So it is a perfect storm going on for South Korea. And I think it's only just started because you can see from the Kospi, we haven't really started breaking down yet because when this market breaks, it really breaks. And what I love about uh, South Korea is it, it has a lot of gamma to it. So that means you can buy some puts and you'll make money very quickly if you get it right. And the currency, when it moves, 
really moves. So that's what I think is going on there. And I don't think anybody's paying attention. In fact, there's too much going on in global macro that people just cannot physically keep on top of all of the moving parts. Well, because the, the, the essence of macro tourism is that you're bouncing from headline to headline as opposed to paying attention to time series within time series within 10, 20 and 30 year charts. That is that's right. Quintessentially and why we're different. I mean, I really and how all and, and how all the assets fit into that, right. the narratives that all the data is telling you. Mm -hmm. And that's why it is different, because we don't follow the headlines. You're trying to anticipate the headlines by looking at the data and understanding the rate of change and all the things you talk about. And that's the crucial thing here. You know, I happen to love the charts. I'm a technical analyst on top of that, because I think it helps give me some sort of understanding of probabilities as well. 100 percent. I mean, 100 percent. I'm 100 percent certain that 80 percent of the world looked like hell before Trump tweeted one thing this week. And that's, that, that, that's just a fact. I mean, you didn't have to know anything. I was joking uh, in a meeting. I was like, even if, even if I was his BFF and the guy texted me that he was going to tweet that, which would obviously be illegal, but even if I, I would have already been positioned, I wouldn't have had to change my position. You know, since the alleged progress in the deal or 90% of the deal done, all these things have been happening. Like you said, I mean, earlier this week, South Korean industrial production growth was down 2.9 year over year. If we had that number anywhere close to that number in the U.S., people would have their hair on fire. I mean, they wouldn't be worried about, well, the company didn't guide down enough. They and just so, wouldn't believe the guidance. But that's an interesting thing to explore, Keith, because that makes me worried. It probably makes you worry at the back of your mind is that the, the investor psychology in the U.S. is kind of thinking that it's bulletproof. While you and I, being macro guys, are looking at the world basically in meltdown <laughs> and saying, we know that macro is contagious. And so the probability of the US not going into meltdown too is relatively low. Now, whether that comes into a recession or whatever, it doesn't really matter. But what are the chances that the equity market could have a big problem here, or the bond market screams high, you know, all of those things, people, the um, US investors don't see it yet. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking at what's going on around the world and I'm like, oh, my God, this is a really concerning environment. This is one of the more concerning environments I've seen in the global picture. Yeah, that's um, it's absolutely absolutely true. Let's uh, I'm going to get to some questions here, Raul, because I want to there's some very good ones here uh, and keep them coming. Um, Raul, in the Great Recession, the ECB and Treasury swapped billions because the ECB was out of dollars. Why wouldn't they do this again to avoid what Raul just said about Spanish banks being short dollars? There is something, and I don't fully understand this, but I've asked people who are deep in the plumbing, and there's something now to do with the Basel III regulations and the Dodd-Frank, that different entities have to fund themselves in different ways. Hmm. So swap lines with the central banks is not the answer. I, I, I wish I knew the full answer and why that's not the case, but, but people tell me it can't really be done in the same way, and you can't take up the swap lines. Hmm. It is interesting, though, that uh, generally speaking, I think it's a generalization, but it is accurate. Um, anytime you're, you're accurately depicting this, the, the cycle, God forbid the cycle, uh, in a way that the, the, the bull can't defend it, they always go to a thing that a central planner can do to fix it. Always. Always. And there's always more. And this time uh, will not be different. But I do appreciate that question because they did do that. So, um, right. um, you know. But it didn't stop the dollar going up over that period, and they didn't stop funding issues either. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to realize that it's not the panacea. It's not going to solve everything. Do you think that um, this has been asked a couple times? I've, I've actually not been asked this, but I think I guess because Trump's doing it, he's going to make Powell his fall guy. Do you think that in the end, the central bankers themselves end up being all of the fall guys? Yes, I think. Well, it's very easy, right, to blame the central bank. 
again, if we're playing a game of politics to get voted in, he set Powell up as the full guy. Yep. So it's pretty straightforward. So he, Trump or any of the politicians can blame the central banks uh, as the key issue here, even though it's not them. They're, they're a reactive function, as you know. They don't really change. They don't set the, 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 the trend. They react to it. Right. Uh, I mean, it's also interesting. I mean, there's another question about this relative to Deutsche Bank, but I'll just like ask my own question because uh, I don't know what the answer is. Um, but like I've always thought of Bernanke as, as his, his job was to you know, protect the house, protect the banks. Now I got P.E. Powell. I basically call him that because I think he's trying to protect credit spreads and, and private equity and corporates. Um, but your European central banker, don't they still have to protect the house and be like Bernanke and protect Deutsche Bank? Is there, do they have the liquidity? Do they have the ability to actually fully, uh, fully do that like we did with Lehman Brothers? No, or not because they have, one, they have one mandate, which is inflation. Mm-hmm. So it is very difficult for them to do that. This is why, I, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times on this um, conversation is Christine Lagarde is really important why she's been brought in is because they know that this is going to require a political solution. And Europe is difficult to do because you've got to deal with all of these nations. So you're going to have to change laws. You're going to have to change deficit laws because you need fiscal stimulus to somehow deal with this. Somehow you're gonna to have to find some economic solution. So it's, it's, it's a really complicated situation in Europe in how to deal with this. It's not straightforward. Mm, not at all, not at all. Uh, here's a question which I won't mince words. I appreciate it, you and I can do this because we keep it real and real vision and uh, in a real conversation. Why do these, <laughs> why do some of these bullish clowns think it's 1995, Raul? Because it's the last hope. That was the only other time that we had a mid-cycle slowdown. Now, you know, that's the only time, the only time we went through a rate cycle where it wasn't a recession. Yeah. So, of course, you know, it's sad to see people pin their hopes on one thing, on the lowest probability odds, and just pray that it works. Mm-hmm. But, okay, I get it. Well, I mean, it, it's actually, you know, why, does, why don't some of the bears that could be a lot more bearish think that this is a lot more like 1999, 2000? There are so many similarities uh, when it comes, I mean, credit, uh, for example, tech has never been uh, the largest percentage of credit going all the way back to then. And obviously back then, telecom, Tom Lee was a telecom analyst. But I mean, you got like the, the whole world changed in a hurry when those earnings. And this is why I'm quite concerned about tech earnings are negative year over year. And people, are, oh, but that's that's because of the semis. I'm like, McFly. I mean, that's a big part of tech. I mean, it, and it's a big part of South Korea. It's a big part of everything else. Yeah, also, corporate credit you know, as a percentage of GDP has never been as pro-cyclically large going all the way back to 2000 when all those growth rates, the earnings growth rate itself, the actual base of earnings by which credit is, is marketed on and, and, and capital raised. You know, why isn't it 1999-2000? I mean, we, we see a, a plenty of cloud stocks traded 15 to 20, 30 times so, revenues. So remember this. Remember back in 1999-2000, we had TMT. That was the big thing, right? Telco tech, uh, telco, media and tech. So what obliterated those? Okay, the telcos all massively overspent on 3G and went almost bust. The tech companies, well, they had such an enormous bubble that that creates a huge problem for them. It's the media companies that were interested. They got completely destroyed. And they got destroyed because, hey, guess what? Advertising spend is cyclical. And everybody thought it was secular. And we're going to go into the same situation again. And the two biggest media players in the world are, in fact, Facebook and Google. Mm -hmm. They are the advertising platforms of everything. And advertising is basically 
global GDP. So as global GDP contracts, advertising contracts, and their earnings get obliterated because oh. it's 70% of both of their earnings. But like the but, but like the book value of the U.S. bank stocks, Raul, what you're missing, because I know this company really well, <laughs> is that it's a secular grower. It's a secular grower. It's i.e. code for I've, these companies have never seen a cycle. I mean, Zuckerberg's not even as old as the, when the last cycle happened. He wasn't even an adult, I don't think. I mean, for God's sakes, uh, people think that these secular growers, again, these, these are the kinds of things that you hear. Uh, never, and this is when I love the fight between macro and micro, right? Because there's some of the micro guys Twice. that I know, <laughs> I love, some of the micro guys are the smartest people I know. Yeah. Oh yeah, great. You, you got when be. the cycle comes, most of the micro guys don't see it. And that's when macro dwarfs everything. So you might have a great company. Google may be a fantastic company, but guess what? It's going to look equally fantastic when it's down 65% on an advertising recession. I 100% agree with it. I have to because by mean reversion alone, since I had the lowest SAT score in my class at Yale, um, there's always a time where I, I get smarter on a relative basis than the smartest guy in the room. You know, Captain Stock Picker, I, I have a every seven years, I kind of come out of nowhere uh, with these uh, macro calls, <laughs> but but, uh, but just taking people back on this, just so that they see it if they haven't seen it. Slide 69, guys. We show the earnings cycle back in 1999-2000. Not ironically, the earnings growth rate of the S&P 500 peaked at 22.9 percent in the third quarter, which was reported in the fourth. Cracks in the system, widening of spreads started happening uh, well before that. But as, as Raul just pointed out, it was led by comms and technology. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, only four quarters later, you can see earnings went from up 23 to down 13 to down 18. And all my all the smartest, I, I guess, Phi Beta Kappa Yale stock pickers ended up in the fetal position. So um, this is <laughs> this is not for the faint of heart. And if you go back to the slide before that, which is not a log chart, the base of earnings, as I pointed out, go back to, there's three arrows there. Those are the prior uh, three cycle tops that Rawls been, uh, that's, he's lived through. I think you've lived through three, uh, you're going into your fourth and my my third. Um, yep. <laughs> but, but in 2000, was the earnings base, never mind the rate of change into the top, anywhere remotely close to the, to the, to the top right corner of this chart? Not even close. You know, so the asymmetry, you would have to be the smartest person in the room, Rawls to say that you know precisely, and you can calibrate day by day, month by month, how fast that line comes down, and how everything reacts to it that's based on it, earnings. The underlying, you know, the, 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 the I guess uh, Kudlow would call it the, the uh, honey bee of, of credit or something like, you know, the, 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 this, is, this is the problem. People don't know. They don't know what they don't know yet. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm fascinated. There's a, there's a thing, there's a little known thing that, that people don't understand is in all of this, there's two issues is that credit. So when you're looking at those earnings, well, guess what happens in, when earnings go down is the corporate buybacks stop. Yeah, good point. Right. The corporate buybacks have been the largest um, single source of demand for equities in the world. In fact, all other sources of demand are negative now except buybacks. So if you take buybacks away, OK, what do you do to the stock market? You create some enormous downside volatility. OK, that that's what happened in uh, November, December. Super fascinating. The flip side of that is, OK, who's the buyer of all that corporate debt that the buybacks um, issue? That debt is, is bought by the pension system, primarily the bankrupt states such as Illinois, who have the big pension fund black holes. What they do is they've raised taxes to try and fill the black holes in their pension funds. Those tax receipts go into the pension system and buy this triple B corporate debt, which is starting to look more and more toxic. So it's this cycle 
that tax receipts are driving the buying of bonds and on the it's the equity guys on the other side buying back their shares problem is is both the tax receipts and the buybacks are all cyclical so if the cycle falls any further the bar of bonds has left the building of corporate bonds and the bar of equities has left the building that's a huge problem yeah i mean and by the way it happens every single cycle people can come up with their inside base the best i like from telecom tom is the the, the latest is uh the strategist being uh is it is it what you see is that during the Fed rate cut cycle, you get PE expansion. Now, he, that, is, that part of the statement's true. What, what Telecom Tom forgot to mention is that the, it's because the E completely cannonballs to the low end of where it could be, like where it could be. <laughs> it doesn't mean the market went up. I mean, it's absurd. Uh, like any cyclical thing, first it gets expensive and then it gets cheap all at once. Um, but we're really at that point, and, 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 and I, I think people forgot what you just said. I think they forgot that corporate boards and CEOs, CFOs are scared of their own shadow. When, when their earnings are negative, they have less money to buy things back with. And then the board says, why don't we hold off a bit? I mean, go back and look at buybacks in 08, 09. I mean, eh, eh. It's, for, it's very forecastable. That's the stupid thing, right? It's not like it comes out <laughs> of the blue. It's not a black swan. But everyone goes, oh, my God, what happened to the corporate? What happened to bond spreads? Well, they widened because... The economy slowed yeah. and everybody stopped buying bonds. It came out of slide 68. The, 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 there's, there's never been a, a, a bigger bounty of corporate profits to buy your stock back with. And people say, oh, but that's because of Trump's tax reform. Well, yeah, yeah Keith, that's part of it. Look at, <laughs> I know what they're going to do. They're going to look at that chart and say, well, Keith, you were wrong in 2015. Yeah, even though I wasn't. I mean, it's still like, a, it's, it's just like, you know. You know what that means? They'll say, well, we would have seen a big cycle. That's the, they always go for that point is yeah. they look for one outlier and go, well, why is it not that again? Yeah. Well, maybe it is, but down to <laughs> I always, and now that we're, you know, we're communicating, by the way, my rate of change model came from analyzing companies. So instead of top line, I have GDP instead of margins or EBIT, I have inflation. So the more I get one-on-one -on -one with these guys, the better it's, it's getting better for me. I got to say, Raul, it's, um, I've gone from some people absolutely hating me and wanting me to get hit by a bus, um, you know, and, and there are less I buses. Don't notice, so I'd say, hey, the chances notice, are going down. I don't notice the hate mail so much. <laughs> when I first bumped into you on Twitter, you'd be fighting all day with people. People seem to respect you now. I don't know how you won that over. I, I, I think it's because of you. I mean, I think, I, it, <laughs> I think you helped me. I mean, i got to have some people that uh, say I'm not... Completely bananas. Um, just a, a couple. Actually, you know, we're, I got to say, you're getting some compliments here. Thirty years as a retail rep, Raul. Yes, I'm old, but this is the best macro info I've ever seen. Honest, transparent, and data driven. No feelings or opinion. That's cool. That's nice. Even though I, I, I think I, I have feelings. I mean, I. <laughs> <laughs> I do because he's, he's basically suggesting I'm really old, and that's really pissed me off. <laughs> Oh, man. By the way, do you think you have to be old to do macro? Somebody asked me that the other day. In other words, they're asking, and they're asking it seriously. What we're, what we're finding, uh, particularly with hedge fund, pension fund, mutual fund, institutional clients, is that the millennials are uniquely interested in this data-driven approach, and some of them are worried that they just haven't had enough reps. So, you know, time does matter. Seeing more cycles does well, matter. I've seen a few guys that I've got to know via Real Vision young macro guys and they're great because they are more data driven okay. than most of us were in the beginning of our careers so that's really good but you know as you know a lot of it is experience of knowing how it plays out mm -hmm. i mean the reason i've had a good call on euro dollars is because i've lived it twice before yeah 
really where I was actively involved in it. I'm like, right, I get this. I get that, you know, this is the better trade. And so it's really difficult to learn those things without um, living it. So it does help to, to have been around a bit. But, you know, also I think that we're probably undergoing unprecedented change in, in how the world works. So maybe our experience will be less applicable going forwards and more people with an understanding purely of data and even getting rid of our anchoring bias of how things can work may be more successful in the future. I don't know. Yeah, and we're, I mean, I'm constantly on the lookout for that. I mean, I think, uh, I think it'd be an understatement to say that you have to evolve constantly uh, as, as an investor, particularly if you're global macro in nature. I mean, if you don't change as the game is changing, you're just going to get run over by the game itself. And I think that that's, that's the biggest opportunity for, for younger people. It's hard to, for me to believe I'm 44 now, but when I was 33, I mean, I don't know 80, 90% of what I know now. And, and hopefully that's true when I'm 54 and 64 again and again and again, because I think that's really the opportunity is that the game does change as the ecosystem changes. It'd be hard. But that's why it's the be- that's why it's the beautiful game as well, mm-hmm. you know, because you're always learning. It's not like you figure out how to solve the Rubik's cube. No, no, no this is the biggest 3D chess puzzle, you know, biggest 3D puzzle of all time. Yep. So it's fantastic. It, it's awesome. I love it. Uh, last question on that, actually, uh, the most interesting debate I've had with more than a few uh, people that are. are you know, engage in this type of debate uh, are saying, what happens, and Jim Rickards really articulated well uh, last week, what happens if what's already happening continues to happen? The Russians uh, now have the most gold as a percentage of GDP out of any country. They're hoarding gold. Chinese are hoarding gold. Uh, They're going to partner up with the Iranians and the Turks, and they're going to have a new currency in the future state that is backed by blockchain and gold. You know, Keith, I... Gold is not going to form a part of the global system because its scalability in the modern world is not as good. However, it has absolute value as a reserve asset, both at individual level and at country level and in any other way. So there's no distraction from gold. I'm very bullish gold. But I think that the some sort of blockchain driven technology or something similar. I thought the Libra coin was incredibly interesting. Not that I have any care about whether Facebook managed to pull this off or not. I doubt it. But the point being is that global basket is kind of like an SDR, but issued by the private sector. I mean, that that genie's out of the bottle now. That's yeah. an extraordinary thing because it has dollars, yen, you know, Korean won. Um, it can have every currency in the world yeah. in it. So in which case it's entirely stable against everything except global money supply. So that's a huge change. I mean, why would you need anything else? So there's the, the revolution in money is coming. And, you know, does gold play a part of it? It always will. But will it be the future of everything? I doubt it. But the revolution, the future of money is coming at us fast. Yeah, I don't like I, you and I are trying to write books on why to be long, you know, blockchain or gold or whatever. I mean, it's we're just trying to, like you said, evolve and find where this fits within the game. And I just find that to be an interesting one because. Yeah, and I. And I think it's super important because, you know, both you and I were just talking about, OK, we know certain things are going to change dramatically in the future. And we kind of all have a suspicion. Many of us macro guys have been around for a while that the whole system of money, fiat money and stuff like that is is probably going to change at the end of all of this because of the end of the global debt super cycle. So if that's the case, what are the outcomes? None of us know, but we all are trying to intellectually think it through because then stuff like gold becomes a probabilistic bet on the future of a financial system. And so if the Japanese end up, for example, 
having a debt jubilee, buying the rest of their JGBs and writing them off. Well, do you want to be, what do you want to be long in that situation? Well, you probably won't be long some gold mm-hmm. because that's when somebody's messing around with money. Yeah, and and that, people and, are messing around with money, you want to be long gold. And that's always been, you know, the insecurity or the inspiration. I mean, two, two different uh, words that start with I that mean completely different things. Uh, for people that are, are watching this, this conversation and, and, and trying to get to how it ends. And if it actually goes, you know, God help us, if it actually goes down the path that you and I are talking about, um, then it eventually will end. There will, there will be an end and there'll be a new beginning. And that's just the way that, you know, the big phase transitions work. Uh, I, I, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to, to have this discussion out in the open. I think that there's, you've just left the table open for many more. And, um, <laughs> and, I, and, and just looking at the feedback, I know that you know, people, people would, would enjoy that. So um, you're always welcome here. I, I appreciate uh, you spending the time. We also popped up um, uh, a Recession Watch uh, promo that you guys did for us. We really appreciate that. And uh, for those of you that yeah, want to sign up. Not at all. To- if, if people go to... Uh, realvision.com forward slash hedgeye, then um, there's a $1 for three month trial if they haven't got any of that, that's the, that's the website. So go and take advantage of it because if you like macro and you wanna hear people like Keith talk at length, in depth, and really to inspire you, it's the place to go. Because yeah. both a lot of Keith and my clients are all there talking about how they look at the world, and that's always great. A dollar for like three months when everybody's devaluing, that's worth a lot more than every every day it's gonna be worth more. I mean, it's just odd. Yeah, that's ludicrous. And in this environment, honestly, you need to get information in this environment because there is a lot, as I said, there's a shit ton going on. And for a dollar <laughs> for three months, that's a that's a lot of ground coverage for you know in a shit ton. Yeah, indeed, there has been a lot going on in in those words. And uh, thank you for for having the bravery to cover it. Uh, that was a real conversation with Raul Paul. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Hopefully, you you did too, listening to it. And we'll look forward to the future ones. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.